Hello everyone. I hope you are doing very well. Welcome to the 57th live episode of the Ask Abhijit show. And as you know, today we go back to the old format. I am going to answer questions from the comments that you have submitted. So I ran this poll recently as you as most of you would know and many of you have voted on it and the results are very clear. I had asked about which is the format that you prefer the most whether it's questions taken from comments, questions taken from live chat or questions taken from face to face video chat and almost 3/4 of you have said that the questions taken from comments that format is the best that offers you the most value. So going forward I'm going to go mostly back to that format. Tomorrow I'm going to have a live chat uh, session, not live video chat but just live chat. But next week onwards I think I'm going to go back mostly to this format, taking questions from comments and answering those questions. So that's what I'm going to do today. I have selected a number of comments, number of questions that I've taken from the comments and I'm going to answer these starting right now. So let's get right into the first question. The first question is by Anmol. The question is can a student with non-science background learn C++ or Java? And the answer is very simple. The answer is yes. Anybody can learn C++, Java, Python, any programming language. Programming lang- languages are at their very core very simple. They're all based on simple logic and you learn the basics and you build upon that and it's something that if you learn systematically step by step starting from the very beginning then anybody can learn even a 12 year old 13 year old kid can learn c++ java python c any of these programming languages so yes you don't need a science background for this you don't need a mathematics or any kind of background you can go straight into this without any prerequisite understanding or knowledge of anything right so i hope that answers the question let's go to the second question Okay this is by Dungar Singh Chauhan the question is can we rely on accounts of chinese pilgrims like xuanzang or fahian is everything mentioned by them true because we know records of foreign travelers help us to know about our history uh that's a good question because of late we have seen that uh the accounts of europeans and turks have been extremely like they are quite distort they portray a very distorted and biased uh perspective or account of india and its culture and in its history now when it comes to the accounts of chinese pilgrims chinese travelers like xuanzang fahian etc it's a very different story these uh pilgrims who came to india came to india in search of knowledge in search of wisdom uh the chinese regarded india as the abode of heaven i think the the term they used was tianxia uh, or something like that which means the center of heaven and uh, they greatly valued india's knowledge india's wisdom india's scriptures and they wished to study these scriptures in detail to understand to, to study and understand india's society and culture in detail and imbibe the best of that and take it back to china and incorporate that into chinese culture and civilization and that's what they did so pilgrims like xuanzang and fahian they came to india they wrote extensive accounts of the travels of what they saw in india 
of the kind of lifestyle the indians had the kind of knowledge we had the kind of universities we had the, the education system they learned sanskrit in order to communicate with us indians and so on and i would say that those accounts that they wrote were actually quite faithful to to the truth and uh, one can trust those accounts because there was no hidden agenda behind those accounts behind what they wrote so i think we can certainly trust the accounts of the ancient chinese travelers uh so yes because see uh, the thing is that we have lost most of our written history all of it was destroyed in the destruction of our great universities and the burning of the great libraries so what little is left is the accounts of many foreigners we find lots of accounts uh, that were written by chinese pilgrims by tibetans by central asians uh, there is the, cha- the the cave of the thousand buddhas which oral stein excavated and he took everything all the texts away from central from from northern tibet western china into england i think most of those texts are now housed in uh, the british museum or something like that and in a way it was good that this happened because the chinese communist party went ahead and destroyed all these ancient texts whatever they could find so in a way this saved and preserved those ancient texts so i think that whatever the chinese wrote about india in those days it was quite faithful it was quite accurate and it certainly will if we study that it will certainly help us understand our past better so to answer in short yes we can certainly rely on those accounts of the chinese in ancient times avinash kale asks what would happen if mars was our moon in its current orbit <laughs> that's an interesting thought experiment so the question is instead of the moon what if suddenly the the planet mars was there in the same orbit around earth not further away but in the same orbit around the earth so that's an interesting thought experiment let's talk about what happens to, what would happen to mars first see mars is all the way further out away from the sun uh, and it's further out from the sun as compared to earth and that's why it is so cold because uh, the distance to the sun is is much greater now if mars were to come into earth's orbit where the moon is currently then it would get essentially the same amount of sunlight as the earth gets today and therefore its atmosphere would heat up significantly i think the average temperature on mars on the surface of mars is somewhere around minus 30 minus 40 minus 50 degrees celsius something like that approximately so if it were to come into earth's orbit the average temperature would would rise significantly it its average temperature could possibly be around 20 25 degrees celsius and this would have significant effects on the atmosphere of mars mars because all the frozen carbon dioxide which is currently frozen in in the form of dry ice on and under mars's uh, soil would evaporate it would uh, create a thicker atmosphere all the water that is frozen there would also ev- would also melt some of it would evaporate so we would quickly see a resurgence in the atmosphere of mars so the atmosphere would get thicker maybe the atmospheric pressure would uh, could probably increase greatly it may even be possible for human beings to walk around without any suits of any kind possibly and so yeah the the conditions on mars would mars would change significantly they would become very much more earth like than they are right now now what is the effect on earth so the moon is a very small uh, object its mass is i think 
one sixth of that of Earth. I think the Mars mass is at least. I'm not sure what exactly it is. It's significantly more than that of the moon, at least twice that of the moon. And therefore, the tidal pull that this planet would uh, effect, would exert on our planet would be significant. So today, because of the uh, presence of the moon, you have these tides in the, in the ocean on Earth. Now, if Mars was there, those tides would be significantly larger. They could be tsunami-sized tides, you know, and you could get, you would see significant flooding of the coastal areas of the Earth twice a day, and the gravitational pull of the planet would also cause significant tectonic activity on the Earth. You would see an upsurge in volcanism, you would see an upsurge in earthquakes and things like that. So it could significantly uh, change the entire uh, the entire uh, climate and everything on Earth, you know and even the tectonic activity. And right now what happens is that during nighttime, if the full moon is there, you get a, a little bit of light uh, that shines down upon you. If the Mars were, if, if Mars was there, you would see a significantly more, a significantly greater output of light, which would be reflected sunlight. And therefore the night sky would change significantly. It would get much brighter. People's circadian cycles would, circadian cycles would change. The circadian cycles of animals and birds and insects, etc., would change. So it could have a significantly disruptive effect on life as it exists on Earth. It could have mass extinctions and many other things, which you, you can't even, many other second order, third order, fourth order effects that you can't even predict uh, accurately. So that's the kind of thing that would happen if Mars was our moon, would, would replace our moon in the current orbit. It's an interesting thought experiment, but of course, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but uh, interesting question. Nice to see this. Okay, next question. This is by Survi. Some historians argue that the executions of Guru Arjun and Guru Tegh Bahadur, as well as the executions of the two young sons of Guru Govind Singh, were purely political moves. What are my thoughts? Yes, so if you ask India's court historians, the, the establishment historians, the so-called Darbari historians, the Romila Thapars, the Irfan Habibs, and so on and so forth, they would tell you that these were merely political moves. There was no other motive in doing this. Uh, the the Turkic emperors, uh, Turkic kings were simply doing this for the sake of political expediency to get rid of certain political opponents. Uh, these uh, these gurus were uh, political opponents of the Turkic kings and nothing more. That's what they would say. Now, the truth is, is, much, is quite different from that. Uh, Sikhism emerged as a form of resistance to the Turkic occupation of India. So, uh, in northern India, in the Punjab, etc. region, this new resistance came up. It was Hindus who decided to dedicate their lives to freeing the homeland, the motherland, from the Turkic invaders and occupiers and oppressors. And they decided to live a certain lifestyle, a very hard, martial lifestyle. They would not cut their hair. They would wear turbans. They would not shave off their beards. They would always carry a weapon on them. So this was a militaristic lifestyle. It's the entire, they dedicated their entire existence to eradicating the presence of the occupiers, the Turks, 
from the motherland, from India. So this was a cultural resistance. It was a military resistance. It was also religious resistance. And the original Sikhs were very clear that they were Hindus. Uh, Guru uh, Nanak, etc. They were very clear that they were defending, protecting Hinduism. Maharaja Ranjit Singh also had um, uh, Goddess Durga, I think, on his flag. And he forbade cow slaughter and all that. So it is. it was very clear until that time that Sikhs were... They were they were militaristic Hindus. It was simply a lifestyle that they had adopted in order to free India from the foreign occupier. So this was a great challenge to the Turks because the Turkic project was to wipe out India's indigenous culture, traditions, religion, architecture, everything, and convert everybody to that foreign religion. That was very that was their overall big picture objective, right? And these gurus. They, they presented a very formidable challenge and obstacle in the path of this objective of converting all India to the foreign religion and to wipe out India's culture because this sort of resistance is something they did not expect. And therefore, the execution of Guru Arjun by, what's his name? Salim, right? The Turkic uh, invader king Salim, who is uh, popularly known in textbooks as Jahangir, so Jahangir Salim ordered the execution of Guru Arjun as a means of, of cowing down the people of India, the Hindus, and telling them, see, this is what we did to your leader. So don't resist. Resistance is futile. That was the message that was sent. Uh, that was supposed to be sent out. It is not a political thing. It's a cultural thing. It, the objective was to wipe out India's culture. And similarly, when it comes to Guru Tegh Bahadur, it, he was beheaded on the order of the tyrant uh, Muhyuddin, Muhyuddin Muhammad, uh, popularly known in textbooks as Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb was one of the most brutal barbarians who ever ruled upon India. And uh, again, he's, he was a very, very staunch and uh, fundamentalist person. And his, uh, his life's uh, objective was very clear to wipe out Hinduism and all traces of Indian culture from India. And the objective in, in uh, having Guru Tegh Bahadur executed was to uh, send a message to all Hindus, to all Indians and Sikhs, that your resistance is not going to succeed. So it was not a political thing. It was essentially an act of terrorism. It was an act of terror. That's what it was. And the message was cultural. It was that your religion, your culture is inferior to us because see, this is what we, have, we were able to do to your gurus. And similarly, Aurangzeb again did this to the two young sons of Guru Gobind Singh. He had them bricked alive into a wall. Two young boys. So these are the kind of barbarians, brutes, inhuman beasts who rule India. And it is a travesty that we, some of us still wish to whitewash their brutal, barbaric, inhuman crimes against humanity. So these were not political moves. These were acts of terror, of religious and cultural terror. Nothing short of that. Okay, next question. This is by Akash. Welcome back, Akash. So the question is that it's generally accepted that humans started settling around rivers and shifted to agriculture from hunting and gathering food around 10,000 BCE. My question is, how do these researchers 
and archaeologists know that this is the case for the entire earth it's rather odd that all the humans developed cutting tools etc got the knowledge of crops all together independently throughout the entire world at the same time 10000 bce i personally feel that a marvelous and complex civilization like ours could be much older than these findings what was possibly going on in bharat at that time and how sure are we that the currently accepted theory of evolution of humans in the neolithic period is accurate this is an excellent question so the the consensus view is that uh, we moved on from hunting gathering and uh, and became pastoral agriculturists around 10000 bce and this happened apparently in the so called cradle of civilization which is the middle east mesopotamia that region right so this is the consensus of uh, consensus view of all mainstream historians etc now what evidence do we have for that very little evidence the, if you look on in only one place you will find only evidence from that place and then you will portray that as the uh, if you if you then go on and portray that as something that is applicable to the entire world it is the height of idiocy and stupidity right so that's the way history has been done thus far i mean uh, even with the very little archaeology that's been done in india we know that india's civilization is around 9 and 1/2 10000 years old we have explored less than 1% of the archaeological sites that are available in this country when it comes to the uh, the so called uh, fertile crescent and when it comes to egypt there are hundreds of archaeologists working in these two regions every year year after year after year there is detailed meticulous research and archaeological work being done every year in these places and that's on it's in, it's on the basis of all that they have, that they have come up with these claims now imagine if we would if we were to do the same kind of detailed methodological methodical uh, archaeological work in india with hundreds of archaeologists year after year after year for 20 years imagine the depth of new information the wealth of new information we would be able to uncover so that is the problem our historians our archaeologists refuse to to do archaeological work in india and that's why we are not able to find the truth about india we know that india's civilization is very old much much older than 10000 bce genetics tells a very very striking story that india's uh, the indian origin r1 haplogroup is about 17 to 26000 years old at least right and the oldest non african haplogroup in the world which is which accounts for more than 90% of males outside of africa non african males that is the haplogroup f which is about 65 70000 years old which originated in india and similarly for matrilineal haplogroups so india's population is the world's oldest non african population it is the place from which all other non african populations uh, emerged it is the original founder zone and therefore if we were to do archaeological work in detail in depth in all parts of india we would find a story that would astound the world i think that indians would have moved away from hunting gathering way before 10000 bce because india is such a fertile subcontinent the climatic com- conditions are so Uh, hospitable to human habitation there is no frost there are no droughts it's very it's a very uh, fertile soil very good monsoon very lush uh, very lush forests and all that 
and i and therefore it's it's uh, incomprehensible that we are not looking deeper into this i think human civilization emerged in india it must have been way before 10000 bce we already know that uh, the oldest evidence of the cultivation of rice is from india it is as old as the evidence that has been found in china and we have looked at less than 1% of the archaeological sites we also know that the sericulture the cultivation of the silkworm is also equal just as old in india as it is in china maybe it actually may have emerged from india and so on and so forth so with with the very little work and data that we have we already have been able to establish an in, incredible amount of antiquity of our civilization so we just need to invest our government needs to invest in in studying our history in greater depth so it's clear that this story is utter nonsense this 10000 bc story story and even if you look at the work of people like uh, graham hancock for instance it's very clear that there there, there is clear evidence of very ancient uh, human civilizations in other parts of the world like in the americas in southern america in northern america the, the the two continents and so on so it's clear that the human story is much older and much more complex than what we have been led to believe what the consensus of all these eminent historians and archaeologists is all these stories are going to be washed out in the next 20 years or so as science throws up new evidence thus far history and archaeology has been the domain of historians and archaeologists now the problem for these great individuals is that scientists are getting into this research and science is going to upend all the information all the dogma that these people have created so it's just a matter of time but it's a very good question and i think that uh, like you said that the currently accepted theories of uh, all these theories are highly inaccurate and the entire story is going to change in short order very interesting question and observations okay this is by kondinya and the question is that China became the first country to test hypersonic missiles and are meanwhile planning to annex Taiwan can the united states or any other superpower do anything to stop china annexing taiwan all right so first of all there's only one superpower in the world which is the united states the other powers are major powers great powers and middle powers but there is no other superpower as of now china is the aspiring super superpower it the chinese seek to display to displace the americans from their pedestal and replace them as the sole superpower in the world that is the great dream of the chinese communist party and of shri xi jinping now when it comes to hypersonic missiles yes the chinese did test some hypersonic missile recently it was a maneuvering marv kind of uh, thing but they are not the first country to test a hypersonic missile uh, the russians have tested the tsirkon missile which is about 7 or which uh, which travels at 7 or 8 times the speed of sound so it is a hypersonic missile so the russians are the first i believe to to have tested a hypersonic missile the chinese have now followed suit the americans are scrambling to catch up it is rumored that india may have some hypersonic plants that are being cooked up something is in development it's been in development for for a very long time in india the thing is that you know once you start a project it takes 10 20 years for it to produce the first testable <laughs> prototype india's plants 
move forward at a glacial pace and it's always because of lack of funding always because of lack of funding scientists and engineers want to test 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 you give them the funds they will test every week test a new configuration every week in india nothing is happening it's just because of lack of funds because of whatever reason now so the chinese are not the first they're the second country that i can think of that have tested a hypersonic missile the russian tsirkhan missile is the first one that i know of it is it is good enough to bypass any nato defense that's how fast it is so the uh, uk aircraft carriers that they i think they are building one or two aircraft carriers they are already, already obsolete in phase of, in the in the when it comes to facing these missiles now the chinese like you said they want to annex taiwan can the us do anything to stop china annexing taiwan yes the chinese will not make a move to annex taiwan until they are 100% certain that they will not fail the chinese are extremely risk averse in the past they have done certain misadventures that have cost them dearly in 1967 they tried to repeat the 1962 war with india and they were beaten back ignominiously it was a terrible defeat for them but india's media and historians will not speak about this because it shows india in a good light they have to keep showing china in a good light and they have to sh- keep showing india as a nation of losers and that's why you don't you don't know about 1967 india defeated china in the 1967 war but you don't know about it no one has told you about this secondly in 1979 was it the chinese tried to invade vietnam they had to face a disastrous defeat to the vietnamese and these are very dangerous things for the chinese communist party a big military defeat today is almost impossible to hide right and if such a thing happens then the chinese communist party could lose whatever support they have among china's population and you could see civil war that's a possibility and that's why the chinese are extremely risk averse they will not try to invade taiwan they will not make that move unless they are 100% certain that they are going to succeed and right now they're not sure of that so what can the us do to stop the chinese annexing taiwan they need to keep up their presence in the south china sea they need to keep up their military naval presence in this region they they need to they need to invest in a stronger navy they need to have submarines on patrol in this region all the time they need to have warships going across the south china sea traveling across this region all the time they need to station aircraft carriers there they need to try and convert the quadrilateral dialogue the so called quad into more of a formal alliance if they can get india on board if they can offer india what it seeks you know there's always give and take there, there's there's no free lunch in the world if the americans seek to turn the quad into a formal military alliance and if they want more participation more robust participation from india they need to give india what india seeks i think they know what india seeks i think you also know my audience my friends what india seeks from the us so the americans need to do that and they also need to uh, ensure that the pressure is always on on china the chinese should not be allowed to become very overconfident right so it, and on also the diplomatic and other maneuvers need to keep hap- keep happening uh, china cannot be allowed to just get away with all of its uh, peaceful rise projects yeah and so on so uh, so these are some of the things that can happen that need to be done to prevent china from making the move to annex taiwan because if the chinese succeed in annexing taiwan 
it's going to be a big 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 problem for not just the us but for india and the rest of the world it's going to be a huge problem and right now the chinese are kind of feeling the pinch their economy is sliding backwards there are shortages of coal and power and other things maybe even food in china the economy is grinding to a stand standstill after decades of double digit growth you are having sub 5 sub uh, sub 6% sub 5% growth in the chinese economy maybe the actual figures are less than 2% if the, if you uh, look through the misinformation that's coming out of china and so on so the chinese leadership may be getting desperate and they may try to grab for whatever they can before it's too late so we are currently we may be passing through a dangerous time the chinese may do something stupid maybe in taiwan maybe in tibet on the india border so we need to be extra vigilant right now india needs to be extra vigilant india needs to step up its game in the indian ocean and india needs to counter every chinese move on the northern border so that's the situation we are in right now it's a, this is what's what's known as interesting times arkadhar asks <laughs> is intercaste marriage good should we do intercaste marriage are karo bhai go ahead who's stopping you do it i mean there's no law against intercaste marriage first of all let me ask this question arkadhar sounds like a bengali name right tell me what is the word for caste in vanga bhasha you what you people like to call bengali it is known as vanga bhasha from vanga pradesh vangadesh which is bengal so what is the word for caste in vanga bhasha what is the word for caste in the kalinga bhasha odia is there a word for caste you could say varna you could say jati but these are two different terms with two different meanings which is the word for caste is there a word for caste is there a word for caste in marathi is there a word for caste in punjabi is there a word for caste in telugu is there a word for caste in tamil is there a word for caste in sanskrit and the truth is that there is no word for caste there is no synonym for the word caste in any indian language we have two terms varna and jati which have different meanings different definitions different connotations and the foreign european word caste isn't found in any indian language and therefore how is caste an indian thing it is something that has been superimposed upon indian society it is something everybody has to follow today because the government mandates it it makes it mandatory for your parents to write down something in the field of caste when you fill up the birth certificate and all all the forms your school admission forms and everything you have to fill in something for caste and therefore everybody has to decide what their caste is based on what the british told your ancestors but in indian society we didn't have anything like caste we had varna and jati jati is your bloodline your patrilineal bloodline yeah 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 sure we are a patriarchal country patriarchal society show me a matriarchal society somewhere else in the world so your <laughs> your jati is your bloodline right now caste is supposed to be blood based right your your bloodline based but jati is 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 bloodline based jati is lineage based when it comes to varna varna is your occupation your aptitude whatever you're best at so in the harry potter universe varna is what the the sorting hat tells you in the harry potter universe also you had four castes if you remember if any of you have seen those 
movies or or read the books so that is a european invention those four schools or four divisions but in india we had varna we had jati every jati could have the different varnas even though you may be of the same family the same blood the same lineage you may have different varnas you may be a shudra you may be a kshatriya you may be a brahmin you may be a vaishya right and when it comes to varna you could have one within varna one varna multiple jatis so this entire dogma of indians being casteist and following this four caste system is utter nonsense it is something the the colonialists imposed upon us they created these four rigid divisions and they forced indians to fit themselves into these divisions if they wanted government jobs and soon or sooner sooner or later it was bound to happen the entire indian state started following this you want any government documentation you have to state what your caste is and only four castes are available so this is a colonial invention you want to marry from somebody some other so called caste go ahead marry i wish you all the best my friend have you seen people traveling in the trains in kolkata in in the metro in delhi in the suburban trains in mumbai do you see anyone giving a damn about what is the caste of the person next to them no one cares have you gone to any restaurant in india those busy restaurants cafeterias do you see people wondering what is the caste of the of the of the uh, waiter or the caste of the chef no one cares no one practices casteism in this country it's ab- absolute nonsense yeah there are some parts in places in rural india where the zamindari system and the mogal uh, system and the other things they have created certain traditions but those are post occupation traditions either after they i they came into force either after the turkic invasion and occupation of india or i or then after the british invasion and occupation of india these things were never practiced or followed before the invasions of india 1000 years ago so please understand this we are not a casteist society caste isn't even a thing in our society today it is because the indian state which is a continuation of the british raj is enforcing this nonsense india's politicians are enforcing this nonsense because they gain electoral benefits from this divide the society and rule the society it is the british method which india's politicians are today exploiting and using so please try and rise about above this casteist nonsense there is no such thing as caste you want to marry somebody from whatever so called caste he or she is go ahead all the best sir Okay next question This is by Ayushman the question is was Bhagat Singh a communist excellent question so our wonderful historians will tell you that Bhagat Singh was a great devout communist he was reading what the communist manifesto or something like that apparently and he was a firm believer in communism and he died a communist lal salam and so on and so forth the irfan habibs the romila thapers the prints the squints the whatever else is scrolls frolls whatever it is they will all tell you that bhagat singh was a communist okay fine so so let's say that yeah i i agree that he let's let's say what they are saying is true let's say that bhagat singh was reading the communist manifesto let's say that bhagat singh believed that he was a communist at the time that he died now here's the thing when bhagat singh was hanged by the british he was 23 years old 
How, how old? He was 23. Let me tell you something. When I was 23 years old, I was clueless. I had read a lot of books. I thought I knew everything about history. I thought I knew everything about the world. But looking back today, I was clueless. I had not the least amount of idea of how the world worked. I did not know what politics was. I did not know what propaganda was. I did not know the truth about the various ideologies of politics. And I did not know the patterns that underlie all the history books that I had read. I understood nothing. I was clueless. When I was 23, I thought I had the world figured out. Right? When you are 18, when you are 23, when you are 25, you think that you understand everything. But as you grow a little older, I can tell you today, <laughs> you realize that you are really, really silly and clueless. It is a phase that everybody has to pass through without exception. Right? So let's say Bhagat Singh died at the age of 23. And at that time, he was reading the Communist Manifesto. Had he not been hanged by the British, by the age of 40, he would have been something else. He would have given up on communism after he would have understood what communism really is. Bhagat Singh was a patriot. He was a brilliant, patriotic young man who gave up his life for his motherland. He was a patriot. He put his motherland before his own life. Do you know what India's communists are like? The Indian communist parties, various communist groups, organizations, they are all without exception. What are they? They are anti-nationals. Do you think after Bhagat Singh realized this, he would have remained a communist? The guy died at the age of 23. 23 is too young to have a political ideology for life. 23 is the time when you are experimenting with different things. Okay, let me try this. Let me see how it feels. Let me do it for a year. Now I don't like it. Now I'll try something else. You are experimenting. You're trying to figure the world out. You think you've got things figured out. And then after a year, you realize that was wrong. Let me try something else. And that is the phase he was passing through. But one thing is very clear. He was a complete, total, 100%, all-in patriot. And that itself tells you that he would have never agreed with the ideology that the, uh, the, the Indian Communist parties, in whichever incarnation you find them, what, the ideology that they follow. They are without, they are without exception all anti-nationals. They will support China's agenda over India's national interest. They will support Pakistan's agenda over India's national interest. They will support the Western agenda above India's national interest. No matter what it is, they will not support India's national interest. They will try and denigrate India. They will write terrible things about India in the Western newspapers, in the Western media. They will support the Chinese Communist Party's territorial claims over India. They will say that the Chinese... Chairman is our chairman, Chairman Mao is our chairman, and so on and so forth. Many of them acted as spies for the Soviet Union and spies for the for the Chinese Communist Party and for various Western powers. You think Bhagat Singh would ever have done that? And that is why Bhagat Singh would never have continued with, continued with communism had he been allowed to live on past the age of 23. That is, this is as simple and clear as day. All right. Next question. 
Yuvraj says, what are your views on the recent threats given to Pakistan by ISIS Khorasan? Is there any threat to India due to the, this extreme radicalization? See, ISIS K ISIS Khorasan is is uh, one of the uh, one of the lesser terrorist organizations in the bigger scheme of things. The biggest terrorist organization is the Taliban, which the, which the Pakistanis created in order to uh, take over Afghanistan. As of now, they have succeeded. ISIS K is not a very big deal when it comes to the bigger scheme of things. Is there any threat to India because of the radicalization by ISIS K? Listen. There is a huge threat to India, and that threat is from Pakistan and nowhere else, nowhere else. The only threat to India is Pakistan, the ISI, the Pakistani army. It is not Taliban, it is not ISIS, it is not ISIS-K, it is not ISIS-J, it is not, it is not ISIS-Q or whatever else they have. The only threat to India is Pakistan on the Western Front. So that is the only uh, threat that India needs to worry about. We have to deal with Pakistan in the next 5 to 10 years and deal with this problem once and for all in a permanent fashion. That's what needs to happen. You solve that problem, all other problems get solved automatically. So that is the thing. That's what needs to happen. Uh, is this a big problem for Pakistan? No, it's not a big problem for Pakistan. The real problem for Pakistan <laughs> is Pashtun nationalism, which is going to emerge in the next 2-3 years from Afghanistan. The Taliban is a Pashtun organization. The Taliban is a Pashtun nationalist organization. Yes, they follow the path of uh, radical Islam and so on and so forth. But they are not primarily an Islamist organization. They are primarily a Pashtun nationalist organization. Organization, And there is a huge unfinished agenda between Pashtunistan or Afghanistan and Pakistan. Pakistan currently is an occupation of a significant portion of Pashtun majority territory territory that should by all by by should with a great deal of justification be part of afghanistan so there is a huge territorial dispute there and that is going to come to the fore sooner or later give it 2 years 3 years i would say 3 years at most and then let's see how it goes for pakistan i think the biggest threat to pakistan is the taliban itself right now they are making all the right moves they are trying to uh, they are trying to pack the taliban leadership with their own hand-picked leaders but let's see how long that lasts let's see how long, how long how long that lasts there is a certain property of certain animals that they you cannot tame them you cannot you can you can herd a group of sheep but you can't herd cats and similarly you can't herd snakes <laughs> so let's see i wish the isi all the best because in the next two three years it's going to be fun and games for us to watch Okay, Arnav asks, a lot of questions are being raised about against Mr. Jinnah, but you once said that he was a true patriot in the beginning. How and why? Now, this is an interesting question. It's, uh, see, every, every individual has a, you have to treat their life, you have to examine their life with a great deal of nuance. So when it comes to Mr. Jinnah, Mr. Jinnah was born, um, he was born in Sindh, was he? He was a Gujarati, I think, from Saurashtra originally. Um, uh, his grandfather had converted to Islam. He was either a Rajput or a Kathi or something like that. And uh, yeah, so so that's that's his birth. And he was very much, like I said, uh, at the forefront of the Indian freedom struggle, the freedom, uh, the, the struggle to break free from British. Now, Jinnah was 
educated in uh, in england he was very much an anglophile he was a non religious person he was in favor of a free india he spent a great de- great portion of his early career fighting for india's independence in one way or the other he was a lawyer and he assisted uh, indian freedom fighters in their legal cases and so on that's what i read and he was in favor of hindu muslim unity he was a genuine secularist not the kind of secularism that you find in india today which is uh, hindu phobia essentially he was a genuine secularist he said that he was of the opinion that hinduism what islam etc should be treated the same and hindus and muslims should work together for a free united india that was very much his political ideology he even opposed the formation of the muslim league saying that it would cause uh it was it would it would cause Communal, communal communalization and fragmentation of india society so he opposed the formation of the muslim league so yeah if you look at these actions of his not his words but his actual actions those are the actions of a patriot so he was initially a patriot he was an indian nationalist he was in in favor of freedom for india from the british he wanted a unified india he wanted hindus and muslims to work together and live together for india's freedom and live together in a unified free country in free india that was his stand for a very long time and then then what happened was that the british parachuted mohandas gandhi into india from south africa and overnight he became the mega star in the congress party jinnah was part of the congress party and he suddenly he found himself completely marginalized see jinnah <laughs> had an agenda that was not quite in tune with the british plans for india so they brought in somebody like mr gandhi who was totally in, aligned with the british agenda and mr jinnah found himself completely sidelined and marginalized he quit the congress party at some stage and he went into exile he lived in england for a decade or so and over there he had a certain flash of inspiration and he said that listen if if you go not sideline me i'm going to go and stab you in the back so he came back to india he joined the muslim league or he joined the muslim league before i'm not sure exactly you can look it up you know you can open a book and look it up but then he came back to india and then he started working for the breakup of india so because he was not able to uh, get the political uh, whatever he wanted politically he was not able to get the political prominence he desired that he thought he deserved and because of that he turned his back to india and he stabbed india in the back and he ended up helping the british and mr gandhi work towards the partition of india so he started off as a patriot but then he betrayed his own conscience his own cause and his own people and his own country so that's mr jinnah in a nutshell Spider-Man says why did the French support India's nuclear tests despite the whole world being against it what are the french uh, geopolitical interests you see the french have a very different geopolitical outlook as compared to the US and NATO the french are very much i think a part of NATO i think they are yes and yet they see themselves as 
a distinct culture, a distinct civilization. They do not see themselves as being part of the Anglosphere. The Anglosphere is the five eyes countries, the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. These are the five closely knit countries. They work together very closely. They don't trust outsiders. They are, uh, except for Australia and New Zealand, those are part of part of NATO, I think. I'm not sure if Canada is part of NATO, but, but you get the picture, right? So the French see themselves as a, as a distinct civilization. In If you look at Europe's history, the French have one of the oldest cultures in Europe, starting from the Franks, Charlemagne and so on, right? So they see themselves as, as having a superior and distinct culture. And they have consistently refused to toe the line of the English-speaking countries. And they also have significant interests in the Indian Ocean region. They, they own the, the island of Réunion, which is in the Indian Ocean, near the Seychelles. And and uh, they need to they want to ensure that that stays in their uh, within their jurisdiction. They don't lose control of that place, and that's why they have a significant naval presence in the Indian Ocean. They have uh, submarines. They have a at least one aircraft carrier, and they are a nuclear weapons power, and so on. So their outlook, their worldview is different, and that's why when India tested five nuclear weapons in 1998. The entire world condemned India's nuclear tests, but the French refused to condemn the tests. I think the Indian Foreign Affairs Minister or or Defense Secretary or somebody actually went to France, met the French President Jacques Chirac, and uh, I think there was a good amount of synergy and understand, mutual understanding at that point. And from that point onwards, France and India have had a very close strategic partnership. Even today, the French are very supportive of India, and India is also very supportive of France and so on. So the French worldview is different. Their geopolitical interests are different, very different from the US. Their interests are in the Indian Ocean region. Their interests are in maintaining their sovereignty from the Anglosphere. They want to maintain their distinct culture and all, which kind of is being... Uh, eroded by their other actions and so on, but that's a different topic. So that's why. So that's the reason why the French have supported India's nuclear tests. And that's why India and France have a very close and very strong strategic partnership. I would never characterize geopolitical relationships as friendships, but it's a very close relationship and a very warm relationship. Whenever you see the Indian prime minister and the French president meet, you can see that there is genuine warmth in the relationship. So that is a brief background of why it is so. Why did the Sanskrit language vanish from India? The Sanskrit language vanished from India beginning in the 19th century. The, in, the Indian state, which was then the British Raj, the East India Company, or uh, so, so what happened was that India's education system was entirely in Sanskrit. India's temples, universities, everywhere you had education, you had Sanskrit being taught. So everybody learned Sanskrit. Everybody could understand Sanskrit. Everybody could speak Sanskrit. But their primary means of communication would be whatever was their mother tongue. North, South, East, West, in other places, you had different languages. So everybody would know their mother tongue and they would know Sanskrit. That's how it was until the first half of the 19th century or even the second half of the 19th century. 
Then the British imposed their foreign education system upon India. And they said that if you want a government job, you need to know how to speak English and you need to have a degree which we have given to you. And the medium of, edu- of education was English in this education system, which they imposed upon India. And slowly but steadily, Indians started needing these government jobs because br- the British destroyed India's industries and everything. So the only means of livelihood that was eventually available to Indians was government jobs. So everybody had to start going through the Indi- the British education system. And that's why people started losing touch with Sanskrit. And they also destroyed India's indigenous education system, the temples-based education system, which was recorded very meticulously by Dharampal in, in The Beautiful Tree, in his book, The Beautiful Tree. So that is the beginning of the uprooting of Sanskrit from India. It is the beginning of Sanskrit going out of usage. And after independence, the Indian state, which was the successor of the British Raj, continued this and made it even worse. And that's why Sanskrit has vanished from India today. Very few people speak or understand Sanskrit. It is actually very easy to revive Sanskrit. Very easy. It can happen within 20 years. But there is no political will. Because there is nothing to be gained politically from doing this. And that's why the governments won't do it until we have the right kind of leadership someday in the future. So that is in brief why Sanskrit vanished from India. The Indian state did that. Harshit says, if there are multiple evidences that prove that Shivkar Bapuji Talpade made an aircraft eight years before the Wright brothers, so why do we still give credit to the Wright brothers for the first aircraft? Interesting question. So I have also heard these stories that uh, that Shivkar Bapuji Talpade was the first person to fly a heavier than air aircraft, mechanized unmanned aircraft on the beaches of Mumbai a few years before the Wright brothers did it. I think it was in 1895 or something like that. So that's what I've heard. I tried to look for the evidence. Where can I find real evidence for this? Can I find a photograph of the airplane which he flew? Can I find a story that was written at that time, a newspaper report, a journalistic report? Can I find something, some piece of primary evidence? I was able to find nothing. Now, what does this tell us? So, so when you say that there is multiple, there are there are multiple pieces of evidence. Where are those uh, multiple pieces of evidence? There are lots of people who say this happened, but where is the evidence? Is there a photograph of this guy doing this thing? Is there? the plane somewhere that we can see and see if that uh, that model can be recreated and can it fly? Is there a newspaper report, a journalistic report from the time? Nothing. Not, nothing is available. Now, does it mean that this doesn't hap- did, did not happen? No. It could very well have happened. But if the evidence existed, it has been taken care of. It's been destroyed. So either there are, so there are two possibilities. A, this is a myth. It never happened. B, it actually happened, but all the evidence has been wiped out, has been destroyed. So I don't know what is the truth. I have looked for the evidence. I have never been able to find the evidence. But it is certainly possible that an engineer in India could have been able to fly a plane before these individuals, Wright brothers, did it. It is certainly possible. Why is it so hard to, to imagine that it could it would have happened? It certainly could have happened. It's not a very big leap of technology. The principles are very simple. 
So it could certainly have happened, but we have lost the evidence if it actually happened. So what can I say about it? And that's why the credit is given to the Wright brothers. Maybe, maybe this was deliberately destroyed all the evidence so that the credit keeps going to the West and not to India. It's possible, but it's just speculation. I don't have any evidence to say this. So the truth is that there is no evidence today. But it doesn't mean it never happened. It may have happened. But we do not have the evidence. So please don't say we have evidence. If you have evidence, please show me. Please show me the evidence. I will be the happiest person in the world if you can show me the evidence. All right. So, so it's very simple. It is not a criticism of anybody. The simple fact is that we do not have the evidence. And I wish the evidence was there. I will be the happiest person in the world if any of you can show me actual evidence that this event actually happened. Atharva says, is India the only real civilization left in the world since the Greeks, Romans, Norse, etc. got replaced brutally by Christianity, Chinese civilization was destroyed by communism, Egyptian civilization destroyed by Islamic invasions, and many more. Should we be proud of this thing that even after so many invasions, we are still a Dharmic country with millennia-old civilization? Okay. Interesting question, good question. First of all, let us define civilization. What is civilization? Does your history textbook teach you what is a civilization? Does your history, history teacher tell you what a civilization is? No, they don't. So let me explain what a civilization is. A civilization is a very advanced society that practices its indigenous culture that has a very evolved culture and has its constitution, its laws, and its institutions that are based, rooted in its indigenous cultures, values, and principles. It should also have a very advanced economy, a very prosperous economy, very high standards of living. It should have a sphere of economic and military influence that far exceeds its geographical boundaries. That is what I define as a civilization. And by this definition, India is no longer a civilization. India is merely a mediocre nation state. India's institutions, India's constitution, India's laws are Western in origin. There is nothing indigenous about India's institutions. India's laws, India's constitution, India's policies, India's governance, anything at all. It's all foreign. India's medium of education is English, mostly. You go to a, go, go to a job interview, you're going to have to speak in English. Everything is foreign in India. How can you call that a civilization? So please understand that the Indian civilization died in 1947. Until 1947, we were trying to reinstate India civilization. In 1947, the Indian Republic was codified in an adharmic fashion. And therefore, the Indian civilization officially died at that time. It doesn't mean it can't come back. It can come back, but it will take some doing. So India is currently no longer a civilization. The civilization has died. It can come back, but it's currently dead. Secondly, are we still a dharmic country? Are we still a dharmic country? Really? Are India's laws dharmic laws? Is India's constitution dharmic in nature? 
is india's governance dharmic or india's policies dharmic is india's education system dharmic india is an adharmic country it is the opposite of dharmic so please understand my friends it is nice that we are still here it is nice that we still know what we were like but we are no longer a civilization and we are now an adharmic republic so that is what we need to resist we need to fight against and we need to rebuild what we really can be that's what need, needs to happen but let's not congratulate ourselves for what we have not achieved sampriti goswami says my teacher said that in the vedic times the learning system was only about memorizing mm-hmm. sir was our vedic learning system only dependent on memorizing things or was there any research or practical learning techniques involved in that well your teacher what can i say about your teacher okay so when it comes to the vedic times there was a certain aspect of of memorization when it comes to the vedas you were supposed to memorize the vedas but everybody isn't supposed to memorize the vedas only those who go into a certain line of work let's say a religious scholars they were supposed dharmic scholars they were supposed to memorize the vedas and various sutras the same goes in the buddhist sutras and all you're supposed to memorize these but can you memorize mathematics you can't memorize mathematics mathematics is logic you have to internalize the logic you have to solve problems indians invented mathematics and in mathematics there is no memorization so how can your teacher claim there was memorizing in the, everything was about memorizing indians were at the forefront of mathematics of technology of research and development look at the cities of the of the uh, saptasindhu region the saraswati sindhu uh, era of our culture can you see the incredible geometry the incredible architecture can you un- imagine what sort of geometrical understanding we would have needed advanced geometry advanced hydro engineering all this can't be done with, by memorizing things you have to understand the concepts you have to calculate angles and equations and volumes right so science is not about memorization indians were at the forefront of astronomy for instance can you memorize the stars which are ever changing there is no memorization in astronomy and then you had the creative arts you had great playwrights like basa kalidasa etc where is the memorization in that this is creative work there is no memorization involved in that so your teacher i regret to say is a complete fool and that is something that is that's a condition that's prevalent among many teachers in india many teachers are really good of course but the majority seem to be like this ignorant fools you know so that's what i have to say about this it is completely untrue that the vedic learning system was all about blind memorization and indians were just idiots who were just memorizing things and going about their lives like robots it was not the case the opposite is true okay ujwal says according to the people of manipur a sage from silet in present day bengal bangladesh went to manipur and converted their king and people to hinduism after burning their manipuri folk religions 
holy books, the holy books of Sana Mahizam, the Puyas, is this true? And if it is true, does it not prove that ancient Hindus disrespected ancient religions? All right. A good question. Good question. Very good. At least the first part of the question is very good. So what is the history of Hinduism in Manipur? So the, the person you are referring, this individual, his name was Shanti Das Gosai. He was from Bengal. Was he from Silat? Maybe, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. But he was from Bengal for sure. And he went to Manipur. He was a preacher of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And uh, the king of Manipur at the time, his name was Pamaiba. Uh, he was the grandfather of Chingthang Khumba, Bhagya Chandra. So Pamaiba was the king under the who, under the influence of this guy, Shanti Das Gosai, declared Gaudiya Vaishnavism to be the official culture or religion, if you want to call it, of Manipur. And he ordered the burning of the holy books of the Sanamahi tradition, which is the uh, which is the indigenous. Uh, culture, religion, whatever you want to call it, of the kingdom of Manipur, of the of the region of Manipur. So this king, under the influence of Shantidas Gosai, declared Gaudiya Vaishnavism to, the, to be the state religion, and he had these holy books, the Puyas, burned. Some Puyas did survive. Some of them have been found, but they, they are unable to translate them because Manipur's historians are all idiots by now. They don't know how to read their ancestral language. But some books have survived. But now the thing is this. Did Gaudiya Vaishnavism enter Manipur only during the time of Shantidas Gosai and, Ching, and this guy, the king Pamaiba? Was there no Hinduism or Vaishnavism in Manipur before that? What nonsense. Vaishnavism had had a presence in Manipur for a very long time before that. There were temples, Vaishnav temples built in Manipur before this king Pamaiba was even, even born, before uh, Shantidas Gosai was even born. The f the very first uh, recorded in influence of Hinduism in Manipur was from southern India. There were these saints called the Alvars from Tamil Nadu. It was their influence that came into Manipur before Gaudiya Vaishnavism ever came into Manipur. And there was no conversion by force or anything. It was just influence. I mean, Manipur is very much part of the Indian subcontinent. The influence of Indian culture went all the way to the Philippines, Thailand, Burma, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, China, Japan, Korea, everywhere. So clearly, there'll be influence in Manipur as well. And there was never, never any force. There was never, there was never any compulsion. The kings tolerated it. They did not care. They did not have any objection to the presence of Vaishnavism or Hinduism or of any sort in Manipur. There was no issue like that. It was only during the, start, the time of this guy Pamaiba, under the influence of Shantidas Gosai, that this stupid thing was done, that the puyas were burned, and that is something that the communists, etc., try to portray as uh, as an instance of Hinduism being oppressive to indigenous traditions and all that. The thing is that it was the king himself who ordered this under the influence of this individual, this fellow called Shantidas Gosai. So yeah, this happened, this did happen, and it is unfortunate. It was terrible that these books were burned, and I blame the king for this. I don't blame Shantidas Gosai for burning the books. The king could have rejected 
this guy's advice. He could have had the guy executed if he wanted. But the king himself decided that the book should be burned. So it is entirely the fault of the Manipuri king, Pamaiba, that the books were burned. So you can't blame Hinduism for this. No, 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 tell me something. India is a country with 1.3 billion population, right? The question is, does it not prove that ancient Hindus disrespected indigenous religions? So India is a country with 1.3 billion people. Let's say a Hindu goes and commits murder tomorrow. Murders happen in every country, right? Let's say a Hindu goes and commits murder. Does it mean that all Hindus are murderers? Let's say a Hindu goes and commits a robbery somewhere tomorrow. Does it mean that all Hindus are robbers? Do you understand what I am saying? If one person does something stupid or silly or something criminal, does it mean that everybody is a criminal? This is the problem in people's thinking. Please try to learn critical thinking if somebody, if one person did something stupid, it doesn't mean that all Hindus are like that, that all ancient Hindus disrespected indigenous religions that is utter nonsense so that's my answer Avinash Kali says do the constellations look the same from other planets so the constellations which uh, Vinash is talking about are the configurations of the stars. We call them, uh, in Sanskrit, we have certain names for them. In Latin, they have some other names. So we have the Saptarshi constellation, which the Westerners called Ursa Major, the Big Dipper or whatever. And we have various other constellations, other configurations of stars that are quite visible and they resemble either animal or human figures or something or the other or like that, you know. So those are called constellations. And uh, that's something that uh, the ancients have uh, have uh, dreamt up, you could say. They, it is the human nature to imagine shapes in everything, familiar shapes in everything. So that's how the constellations were born. And these constellations have names. So do the constellations look the same from other planets? So from the Earth, these shapes have a certain pattern. Let's say I go to Mars. Will it look different? Let's say I go to Pluto. Will it look different from there? I don't think the constellations will look very different from other planets because we are still within the solar system. And the vantage the vantage point that we have is still very much the same. But if we were to go to a neighboring star, let's say the Proxima Centauri system or Tau Ceti, for instance, which is about 10 light years, 10, 11 light years from here, then the constellations would look different. Yes. But from within the solar system, I think it would look very much the same because it's still a very small piece of the cosmic real estate. It's all in one location only, even though it may be very far for us. So the answer is no, they will not look the same. They will, they will very much look the same from other planets, but they will look different when you go to another star system. Next question. The question is, the original Indo-European world was more connected than the Christian European dominance world. Persians, when threatened by Arabs, ran to Bharat, the Parsis. Yes. Do you think the ancient Indo-Europeans had an idea about their origins from our land, from India? And the proof hasn't been found because the Abrahamics made sure that no history survives as it is all considered to be lies. I, I think that the ancient Indo-Europeans across Eurasia did have an idea of where they had migrated for, from. 
I'm not sure they remembered where exactly the land lied. Maybe they would say it was from the east and maybe they had a name for the land. Now, let me show you something extremely interesting. Let me uh, share the screen. All right. Where are we? One second. So I am... Can you see this? I'm not sure you can see this. Hang in there. One second. Okay, you can see my screen now. So let me let me type in the name of Croatia. Let us Google Croatia and let's go to Wikipedia. Now, as I keep saying, Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information. But in this case, for the sake of for the sake of uh, conserving time, let's go to Wikipedia. So this is Croatia, right? Now let's go to etymology of Croatia. What is the origin of the name of Croatia? The name of Croatia derives from the medieval Latin Croatia, itself a derivation of Northwest Slavic Croat, whose origin is Horvat from proposed Proto-Slavic, whatever that is, which possibly comes from the old Persian Harahwat. So the old Persian word Harahwat was the origin of the modern nation, the name of the nation of Croatia. Now they are stopping here and they will not tell you what is the origin of the old Persian word Harahwat. The origin of the old Persian word Harahwat is the Sanskrit word Saraswat or Saraswati because Sa becomes Ha when you translate from, from Sanskrit to old Persian because Sanskrit was a mother language of old Persian. So this tells you that the nation of Croatia is named after the ancient river Saraswati. Harahwat, Saraswat, Saraswati. So it's clear that even though they do not remember perhaps what the origin of their people is, and yet the origin of their people, geographical origin, is still encoded in the name of the country. And I am certain that before the Christianization of the European, of the Indo-European world, I am certain that they actually would have remembered where they came from. So you are right, the, the original Indo-European world was much more connected than the Christian European world today. All the uh, ancient knowledge was destroyed once everyone was converted to Christianity. All the books were destroyed, all the books were burned. All the wise women were burned alive as witches and so on. And people were rendered illiterate. The only language that they were allowed to learn was Latin in addition to the, uh, their mother tongue. And all writing was in Latin. And the only book you were allowed to read was the, the Bible, right? And so on. So that's how the ancient knowledge was wiped out. And yet, in, this, in the example of Croatia, the origin, the geographical origin of the pre people of this country is encoded in the name of the country itself. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, Neil Mehta asks, uh, what are your, your views on Grigory Perelman solving the Poincaré conjecture and then rejecting the $1 million prize and refusing the Fields Medal too? I read that he was disappointed by the response of the scientific community about his research. Could you please shed some more light on it? 
this is again a very interesting uh, topic grigory perelman was is is sorry i apologize he is a russian mathematician who solved this great more than a century old year old problem the poincare conjecture i'll not go into what it is but he solved this enormous problem that so many people had tried to solve and nobody was had succeeded in doing it so he solved this problem he was he was offered the millennium prize i think which has a 1 million dollar uh, prize money he refused that he also refused the fields medal in mathematics which is given once in 4 years to one person who is below 40 so it is even greater than the nobel prize the fields medal he refused that too and uh, like you said he was disappointed by the response of the scientific community about his research so let's understand what that was what was the thing that he was disappointed with uh, let me share my screen once again i will show you something interesting so we were looking at croatia now let's go back to google let's go to an article called manifest destiny so this is an article that came out in um sorry not manifest destiny manifold destiny manifold destiny this is an article that came out in the new yorker magazine in 2006 the author was silvia nasser who wrote the very famous book called a beautiful mind so she wrote this article in which she she revealed how the chinese mathematician xing tung yao tried to steal the credit for solving this uh, problem from gregory perelman what happened was that gregory perelman did not submit his proof of the poincare conjecture to any peer reviewed journal he simply put it up on the physics archive server which is a preprint server so the, the papers that are put up there are not peer reviewed he simply put up his paper there and there was it so it did not go through peer review it confounded mathematicians and then soon enough you find that this guy shing tung yao along with a couple of other chinese mathematicians produced a paper which they called the crowning achievement or crowning something or the other in solving the poincare conjecture and they essentially tried to steal the credit credit for solving this problem from gregory perelman and then it as it happens an indian mathematician in indian uh, an indian graduate student i think he examined both the papers and he exposed how much of this material was just copy pasted from gregory perelman's work and that's how these chinese mathematicians including this very famous guy xing tong yao they were exposed but this greatly disappointed gregory perelman so this this article manifold destiny is the story of how this happened how this attempted theft happened and what was the aftermath of that it's very interesting you should read it so that is why gregory perelman was deeply bitterly disappointed in the response of the scientific community essentially how these people tried to steal the credit and all all that happened after that and that essentially led to him leaving the field of mathematics altogether after solving the problem he, he just stepped out of the world of mathematics and i think he has not been active ever since and he has rejected every honor that has been offered to him every prize money everything so he is a, you could say a pure mathematician a pure scientist who is doing it just for the sake of solving the problems and not for the sake of any prize money or any financial or any other 
recognition. An incredible person, one in a billion kind of person, Grigory Perelman, one of the greatest mathematicians, one of the greatest living mathematicians and probably one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right, next question. Anchal says, you always say that under one strong leader, India can be unified and become a strong nation. What were the common leadership traits or qualities amongst all the great historical leaders like Shivaji Maharaj, Chandragupta Maurya and others? Can And how can we develop such, such leadership qualities? Right. So leadership is a fascinating topic. It's a very simple topic at one end of the spectrum. It's a very complex topic when we peel back several layers and, and look under the hood. So what are the common traits or qualities between amongst people like the great Chhatrapati, Shivaji Maharaj, Chandragupta Maurya, and people like Kanishka, Samudra Gupta, and so on and so forth, the great, great leaders, the great rulers of India. So there are a couple of things you will you will notice straight away. They understood what their national interest was, and they put the national interest above everything else. They put their the national interest above their personal likes and dislikes and their personal pet ideologies and all of that. The national interest comes first. The national interest is simply the long-term security and prosperity of the nation and its people. That's as simple as it is. Security and prosperity. Long-term. Not today, not next week. Next 500 years. That kind of, that kind of uh, vision is required. If not the next 500 years, next 50, 100 years, at least you have to look at as a great leader. So that is one thing they had in common. They put the national interest above everything else. And that is in contrast with somebody like Mohandas Gandhi, who put his pet ideology of non-violence above the national interest. Right? So that is the difference between great leaders and fake leaders. So that is something Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj had, Chandragupta Maurya had, Vishnugupta Chanakya had, Kanishka had, Samudra Gupta had, and the, the great Cholas had, and so on and so forth. That is one thing. The other thing is they understood the teachings of the great Vishnugupta Chanakya and they followed those teachings, right? Uh, more or less, more or less. Yes, they did. So you cannot, if you contrast that with the behavior of somebody like uh, Prithviraj Chauhan, who allowed the enemy of the civilization to go away, who who allowed the, <laughs> who forgave the enemy of the civilization and allowed him to go, to return to his homeland, regroup and come back. So that is something, that is an action that goes against the precepts and the teachings of Vishnugupta Chanakya because that is something that is going to harm the nation and its interests in the long run. So that is the behavior you don't want in a leader, the kind of behavior that uh, Prithviraj Chauhan demonstrated, that uh, Rani Naiki Devi demonstrated. That's the kind of leadership which is not leadership, that is harmful to the nation. So Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, Chandragupta Maurya, etc., they understood uh, statecraft, Chanakyaniti, and all that. So these are some of the qualities that are common in all great leaders. And that's the kind of leadership we would like to see in the future. That is the kind of leadership that will take the country, the nation, the civilization forward. 
if you look at the past 70 years i'm not like i'm not talking about the 21st century let's just talk about the 20th century you've hardly had any leader who did that after our so called independence whether it is the great shri nehru the shri great mr gandhi or individuals who came after them uh, i mean you know what i mean right so so that is something that was lacking in all these people and hopefully in the future we will have leaders who will surpass every pre- previous leader so how do you develop such leadership qualities first study what leadership is and then it's all about discipline discipline and living a disciplined life first you have to first discipline yourself and cultivate all those qualities in you and then you have to find a way of taking other people forward with you if you have the ability to do that so that is what leadership is in a very small nutshell it's a very big topic you can you can have an entire series of documentaries about that it's a very big topic but in short that's what it is okay one more question spiderman says has russia fallen as said by abhijit ayer mitra he says that china is the big brother of russia and putin is a chinese puppet okay listen i have not heard uh, mr ayer mitra say this so uh, therefore i would not like to comment about what he he may or may not have said i have not heard that and therefore i'm not going to answer that part of the question now is china the big puppet the big the big, <laughs> the big brother of russia is mr putin a chinese puppet no absolutely not mr putin is nobody's puppet mr putin uh, <laughs> mr putin will be nobody's puppet he understands what he understands what the national interest of russia is and he is doing whatever needs to be done with the resources that he has at his disposal it is very well known that russia is no longer a superpower it is not, most likely not even a top 10 economy its uh, economy is dependent on natural resources oil and gas and coal and all that it has a very powerful nuclear nuclear arsenal the most powerful nuclear arsenal in the world so it has certain strengths it has certain weaknesses it has one of the weaknesses is its enormous geographical extent much of which could be considered to be undefended and the chinese have their eyes on that so truth be told mr putin is the opposite of china's puppet he doesn't trust china china and russia have a very fraught history the russians almost nuked china in the 1960s and there is a big territorial dispute that is currently that has currently been swept under the carpet but is it's going to rear its ugly head sooner or later so right now because the west is so much anti russia the chinese and the russians are kind of working together you could consider them to be semi allies of some, some of some kind but if you were to believe that mr putin trusts the chinese that is entirely and completely incorrect Mr Putin knows what the Chinese want. He knows what their long-term agendas and plans are. He knows their ambitions and he knows the territory, the Russian territory that the Chinese covet that they have their eyes on and so on. So Mr Putin is currently doing whatever he can to keep things going. And in the future hopefully things will be better for Russia and uh, not so better for the Chinese which will be good for the whole world. so i would not say that china is the big brother of russia it would appear to some people to be so at a superficial level china has a much stronger economy so that makes it looks like the chinese are richer and therefore big brothers but the russians have a bigger 
and more powerful nuclear arsenal and a much more powerful military and a very battle-tested military as opposed to the Chinese military, which is completely untested. So I think it's more like a balance of equals. The Russians are way stronger militarily and the Chinese are much more stronger economically. So it's it's an interesting balance. But I would not consider the Chinese to have a big, big brotherly relationship with the Russians and especially with Mr. Putin. Mr. Putin is nobody's puppet. Tanvir Sheikh says, what are the possible ways to uh, uh, achieve artificial gravity? Would big fans in a starship ceiling to create a downward push work? Um, No, I I can't imagine how a big fan would create a downward push or or create gravity. The, The simplest way to create artificial gravity in space, in Earth orbit or beyond, is to have a donut shaped ring-shaped spacecraft, which is rotating around its uh, center. So that creates an artificial gravity-like situation. If you have a string and a cup, which is dangling from the string, you pour water in the cup and then you whirl the cup around, it's going to create an artificial gravity kind of thing and the water will stay in the cup even when it's upside down. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's the easiest way to create artificial gravity. Right? Centrifugal force. So that's what needs to happen. That's the easiest way to create artificial gravity in orbit around the Earth or beyond. And such concepts and designs have been explored extensively in science fiction. Let me show you uh, if any such... uh... There's a lot of artwork, I'm I'm sure, that's available. Uh, Let's take a look at this. Artificial... Let's see. So can you see the structure here? So this ring-like structure, this one here, this one here, this one here, it would have to rotate and that will create an artificial gravity-like situation within. You could even have an enormous such structure, a cylindrical structure like what you see here and so on it would have to keep rotating and that would create the artificial gravity on the surface, on the inner surface of the cylinder or the or the toroidal structure. So that is the simplest and easiest way of creating artificial gravity in a spacecraft. Yuvraj says, why is the Brahmaputra called a male river in India? Maybe the only one in India. Is there any historical significance to that? I, I found this very interesting question. Uh, rivers have masculine and feminine names. Uh, I don't think the Brahmaputra is the only river in India which has a f- masculine name. I can think of at least one more river. The Damodar River, I think it's also in the east of India, uh, which also has a masculine name. Damodar is one of the names of Lord Krishna. Now, as we know, the, the, the word for river in Sanskrit is Nadi, which is a feminine name, which is a feminine word. Uh, in Sanskrit, words have genders and Nadi has the feminine gender. There are many Indo-European languages in which you have gendered nouns, right? For example, French. In French, the word for river is rivière, which is again a feminine noun. And I imagine, I think that many of the rivers in Europe also have feminine names. 
for example the river seine in france la seine it is a, a feminine name the river thames which flows through london its original name was tamesa which is the dark river from sanskrit tamas tamesa is a feminine name again and then you have a whole bunch of rivers named after the river goddess danu the rigvedic uh, river goddess danu which are all situated in eastern europe don dnieper danube donets dunyavik etc so these are all named after a river goddess a feminine female goddess again and in india also most rivers seem to have feminine names it's a very interesting thing and i'm i don't have an answer for this i don't know why it is so it is something that is quite fascinating and uh, it, it needs to be looked into in more detail by historians if they ever will do that and it's it's it it would tell a lot a lot about india's culture actually why have all most of the rivers been given feminine names kaveri godavari ganga saraswati yamuna which is yami tapati and uh, many more most of the rivers seem to have feminine names very interesting so yeah it's something that needs to be looked at in with, with a great deal of seriousness but so far nobody seems to have asked this question at least no historian seems to have asked this question of themselves so i don't have an answer for you but i certainly agree that it's a fascinating question it's a fascinating topic and something that ex- extends far beyond europe beyond india into the entire indo european uh, region so something that needs to be looked at in detail in depth great me says what was the actual reason of the bengal famines was it due to the scorched scorched earth policy of the british due to the fear of the japanese conquest or due to natural reasons or due to both of these the answer is none of these the famines that the british engineered in india had nothing to do with the japanese conquest or a or a potential japanese conquest the japanese were on the doorstep of india in the 1940s the british started their artificial famines engineering these artificial famines from the 1700s onwards it had nothing to do with japan and there was no scorched earth policy and there was no natural reasons these were artificial famines the british understood that the indians were great fighters they were able to uh survive the centuries of turkic occupation and and oppression and maintain their culture and they kept fighting indians kept fighting indians kept resisting so the british decided to just starve the indians you can't fight if you are dying of hunger you can't stand if you're dying of hunger let alone fight so the british decided to starve india into submission so you had these artificial famines year after year after year more than 100 million indians died in these artificial famines at least 100 million indians died in these artificial famines that the british engineered it had nothing to do with the japanese it had nothing to do with natural natural reasons these were artificially engineered famines they engineered them in a variety of ways they forced farmers to start growing indigo and cash crops instead of food stock food crops for instance that's one way of doing it and there's a multitude of other ways of doing such things the end result is that more than at least minimum 100 million indians died as a result of british artificial famines which is nothing short of a massive 
genocide. It is one of the most horrific crimes against humanity. And we are not taught this in our education system. Our history teachers will not teach you this. Our history textbooks will not tell you this. And the Western historians, even though they know everything, will not speak about this. Shameful. Aryan Chaudhary says, what is Kemalism? Why didn't Mustafa Kemal Ataturk give recognition to the Armenian genocide? And why didn't he give independence to Kurdistan? Can Kemalism be implemented in India? Yeah, so that's the question. Kemalism is the policies, is, is the entirety of the policies of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the great leader and the father of the Turkish Republic. So Mustafa Kemal Ataturk was the person, he was a soldier, he was one of the greatest military generals of all time. He uh, freed Turkey from the uh, from foreign occupation, from western occupation, the Turkish war of independence in the 1920s, in the aftermath of the first world war. And uh, it was when the Bulgarians and the Greeks and everybody attacked Turkey and tried to dismember Turkey. And he fought everybody off. He also fought the Ottoman Sultan, the Caliph. And he defeated everybody. And he was able to uh, create an independent Turkish Republic out of whatever was left of the Ottoman Empire. And the policies that he implemented after Turkey gained her freedom is what is known as Kemalism. So there's a six-point plan agenda or something like that. Kemhuriyet and... Uh, Mm, I forget that I forget the Turkish terms. Let, let's take a look at it. Okay, let's let's all go back to our trusty Wikipedia, which we cannot trust, but I'm doing it just for the sake of saving time. So let's go here. Let's go to Kemalism. So let's see what Wikipedia says about Kemalism. There are six. It's a six-point agenda. The six arrows. Yeah, they call it the six arrows. Alti ok. Ataturkism is another synonym for Kemalism. So what is the philosophy, uh, modernization philosophy, which guided the transition from the religious Ottoman Empire to the unitary secular republic of Turkey? The six principles are Kumhuriyet Çelik, which is republicanism, Halk Çelik, which is populism, Milliyet Çelik, which is nationalism, Laikilik is laicism, which means secularism, and Daulat Chilik, which means statism, and revolutionism, which is Inkilap Chilik. So these are the six principles of uh, of Kemalism, which are which is the uh, ideology or the methodology that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk employed to modernize Turkey, to take Turkey out of the depths of the Ottoman Empire and its uh, orthodox uh, way of life into. The 20th century. So he transformed Turkey into a modern, progressive, secular, European nation from being an Eastern Islamic nation. And he tried to secularize Turkey. He tried to stamp out religion and so on. And he almost succeeded. Today, Turkey is going all the way backwards again. But so, so that, that's just the cycles of time, right? History is cyclic in nature. So Turkey seems to be going backwards again. It's going, it seems to be turning its back on the principles 
of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, but that's what Kemalism is. Can it be implemented in India? I don't think it needs to be implemented in India. The Turks are a different kind of people. Indians are a different kind of people, different temperament, different worldview, different attitudes, different culture. What works there doesn't mean it's going to work here. We need a different approach. We need different solutions, solutions that are tailor-made to India's culture and civilization. Right? So it, it doesn't need to be brought into India. Why didn't Mustafa Kemal Atatürk give recognition to the Armenian genocide? So first of all, he was not involved in the Armenian genocide. He was a soldier at the time, but he was not involved in it. And he saw no need to... See, he was trying to build a strong nation out of the ashes. Giving recognition to the Armenian genocide would have meant that it would have brought a great deal of shame and opprobrium onto the nation that he was trying to build. And he saw no need to burden himself with this additional burden. And that's why he didn't do, do anything about that. Why didn't he give independence to Kurdistan? Because he needed the territory. He wanted to build a small compact nation from the ruins of the Ottoman Empire without giving away territory, which he could keep for himself, for his people. And that's why he did not give independence to Kurdistan. Right? His agenda was very clear. His service was to the people of Turkey, to the Turkish people, not to the Kurdish people. He was not somebody who believed in universal brotherhood and Gandhian principles and all that. He was very clear. I serve the people of Turkey, the Turkish people and the Turkish Republic. Now the, the Kurds have a separatist agenda. I am not saying it's right or wrong or whatever. Their agenda, which actually is quite justified, is to have a nation for themselves. And the homeland of the Kurds, the so-called Kurdistan, Kurdistan, is divided across the nations of Turkey and mostly Turkey and Iran, if I'm not mistaken. Some part of it is in Iraq as well, and so on. And that's why the Kurds have no country of their own, of their own, no homeland of their own. A majority, a significant portion of it is in Anatolia, present-day Turkey. And Mustafa Kemal Atatürk was. He wanted to build a strong, unified country and not give in to separatism. And that's why he did not give independence to Kurdistan. So these are the reasons why he did what he did. He was a dictator. He was a brutal dictator. He employed all means at his disposal to build a strong Turkey. Uh, some of the things he did could, can be construed today as, as massacres or crimes against humanity, etc. He did what he did. He did what he had to do, in his opinion, <laughs> to serve his people and his country in the long run. Long-term national interest. The long-term security and prosperity of the nation and its people. And the people he had chosen to serve were the Turkish people. And that's why he did what he did. There is no right or wrong. It's just history. Learn history. Understand how things work. Understand how the world works. So that's about Kemalism. I have a whole lot of other questions, but I don't think I have the time to answer them all today. So I am going to stop here now. Let me take a look at the comments. If you have something to say, if you have any, maybe a couple of questions here, maybe I'll answer a couple of questions and then we will wrap it up for today. Okay, let me see. Do we have any interesting questions? Something I haven't taken up before? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me see. Let me see. If you have questions, ask me now. Hi, someone is, someone is saying hi. 
Hi, hello, how are you? Okay, my views about Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler lost. As a leader, you must never lose. If you lose, you expose yourself and your people to all kinds of problems. So Hitler, first of all, he was a loser. He lost. He could not achieve his objectives. And secondly, he was a monster. He was a monster. He perpetrated the genocide of the Jewish people. I don't know how many people, four to six million Jews he killed. At least a million Romani people, Indian origin, gypsies of Europe. He killed them too. So I have absolutely no sympathy for somebody like him. He was a monster. And uh, whatever he said about him today, he deserves all of it. That's all I can say about Mr. Adolf Hitler. Okay, something else. Let me take one more question. Anirudh says, what do you think about the future of India? I think the future is bright if the leader is right. That's what I think about the future of India. Okay, I think that's it for today. So thank you everybody, guys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, friends, countrymen, countrywomen, and everybody around the world. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for your viewership. I appreciate it more than you can imagine. Thank you very much. This is it for tonight. But I will see you tomorrow in a live chat session. Until then, thank you very much for watching. Take care. Bye-bye.